This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. In this series of programs, I'm going to be looking at woke, cancel culture, critical race theory, intersectionality, open borders, political correctness, identity politics. These are a whole lot of ideas that seem to have come out of the blue in the last few years. I was completely lost about what they meant. I figured that there would be a good chance that you would be too. So in these programs, I'm going to be looking at how all these things emerged and what they mean for you, good or bad. So let's go back to where it all began. In my last program, I told you how Justice Hugo Black of the United States Supreme Court, way back in 1947, in a decision of Everson and Board of Education, delivered a judgment that said Christianity had to be kept out of the public arena at the federal level, because under the Bill of Rights, there was a separation of state and religion. He said that there was an absolute separation between state and the federation. Now, Justice Black was a progressive judge, though they didn't call them that back in 1947. He'd been appointed to the Supreme Court bench by President Roosevelt. He supported what would today be seen as left ideologies. Christianity has been on the nose to the secular folk since the time of the Enlightenment. That's not surprising. Everyone thinks that their religion is best, and the atheist secular people thought that about their atheist religion because a religion is what it is. So Justice Black stuck the knife into Christianity in his judgment in the Everson case, where he found that the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights meant that neither a state nor a federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious organizations or groups, and vice versa. This seemed like a strange conclusion to reach. The separation of church and state is a Judeo-Christian thing. Those religions are the ones that brought in that separation. No other culture had done that. In every other culture, religion and politics went hand in hand. Look at Rome, where the emperor was usually a god. Well, he thought he was. The separation of church and state started with the laws that God gave Moses. Modern England, going back to the Magna Carta in 1215, and before then, had always separated church and state. The United States was founded by pilgrims at the beginning, and they were definitely not members of the Church of England. 
they had fled to America to get away from that church and being forced to be part of it. When independence from England came to America, the last thing the overwhelmingly very devout Protestant Christians of North America wanted to see was the newly created federal government set up an official church of the United States. There were a lot of different Christian religions in the United States and they all wanted to be left free from outside interference. The idea that those people would have wanted Christianity not seen and not heard in the public space, though, was as likely as someone choosing to stop breathing. Still, as they say, that's a point of view. Weird and highly unlikely, but in 1947, Justice Black found that that was exactly what the devoutly Christian founding fathers of the United States wanted and had put into place back in the 1770s. Now, you're probably not a lawyer, but you're probably bright enough to make up your mind, even if you're a radical atheist. Well, maybe I should change that just to say that if you're an atheist. Anyway, I bet you can see where Justice Black got it wrong. Let me tell you what he used as his principal resource to reach the conclusion that he did. The First Amendment, the Freedom of Religion Clause, meant that neither a state nor the federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious organizations or groups, and vice versa. Justice Black quoted the words of that great American Thomas Jefferson. You would think that Justice Black could not go wrong having a rock like him as his foundation. In his judgment, Justice Black said, In the words of Jefferson, The clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. This wall of separation must be kept high and impregnable. We would not approve the slightest breach. Now, this must have been taken from a pretty profound document by Thomas Jefferson as part of, say, his deliberations in drafting, debating, and all of the states ratifying the First Amendment, freedom of religion. After all, Jefferson was the person who drafted the Declaration of Independence, which was approved by the Continental Congress on, of course, the 4th of July. The drafting of the U.S. Constitution began on 25 May 1787. The state of Virginia ratified the Constitution on 25 June 1788, just after the first colony had settled and was struggling to survive in New South Wales. The First Amendment, one of ten that made up the Bill of Rights was adopted by the Congress on 15 December 1791. So, relevantly to the deliberations of Justice Black, based on the words of Thomas Jefferson, where was Thomas Jefferson when the Bill of Rights was being drafted and settled, and what was Thomas Jefferson's role in the drafting and approval of the First Amendment around 1791 that makes his input so vital to Justice Black's judgment? Well, Justice Reinquist filled in that gap for us in his judgment in Wallace and Jeffrey in 1985. You should be wondering where Justice Black got his Thomas Jefferson quote from to begin the effective banishment of Christianity from the public square in the United States, which is what has subsequently happened from his decision in Everson and the Board of Education. Justice Reinquist, in his judgment, dripping with rightful indignation at the gross liberties that Justice Black had taken in his judgment on such a vital issue, central to the faith of the overwhelming majority of Americans, Christianity, when Reinquist said, It is impossible to build sound constitutional doctrine 
upon a mistaken understanding of constitutional history, expressly freighted with Jefferson's misleading metaphor for nearly 40 years. Thomas Jefferson was, of course, in France at the time the constitutional amendments, known as the Bill of Rights, were passed by Congress and ratified by the states. His letter to the Danbury Baptist Association was a short note of courtesy written 14 years after the amendments were passed by Congress. It would seem to any detached observer as a less than ideal source of contemporary history to the making of the religion clauses of the First Amendment. Now let me break this down for you so you understand exactly the slight of hand that Justice Black pulled in his act of the most violent, secular, anti-Christian judicial activism, disguised as if he was merely interpreting the law. He looked to Thomas Jefferson to explain what the First Amendment meant. That was a neat trick, because he is so revered. But Thomas Jefferson wasn't anyone to look to for input on that question. Thomas Jefferson wasn't one of the people who drafted the First Amendment, and he had no part in its ratification by his home state of Virginia whatsoever. What Justice Black relied on was a private letter written by Thomas Jefferson as a private citizen, not written as a legal advice to explain what the First Amendment meant. The letter was written by him to a church group, the Danbury Baptist Association. His letter to that church was written 14 years after the First Amendment had been ratified by each of the states that made up the United States of America, including Thomas Jefferson's own home state, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson wasn't even a member of the General Assembly of Virginia at the time that it voted to ratify the First Amendment. When Thomas Jefferson stated in his letter to the Danbury Baptist Association was that he contemplated with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature would make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In his words, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson was accepting that the whole American people had denied to the federal government the right to establish a national official church for the United States, what Jefferson said was that he was refusing to take up the cause of eradicating the American state's individual rights to establish any religion in their own state. That was exactly what the American people, through their delegates, had agreed in passing the First Amendment. That position was expressly and clearly preserved by the First Amendment. I repeat, all that the First Amendment did was to stop the federal government establishing an official Christian church of the United States, like the Catholic Church in medieval Europe, not to slam the door in the public face of Christianity and weld it shut like the Chinese Communist Party did to its citizens in Wuhan when the Wuhan virus was accidentally released from one of the Chinese Communist Party's bacteriological and warfare research facilities. It's clear that Thomas Jefferson, the man who once said that religious liberty was the most inalienable and sacred of human rights, would have supported stopping public discussion of religion in the way that has increasingly happened not only in America, but in the rest of the English-speaking world, largely because of Justice Black twisting what Jefferson had said in the Everson case. Put this assertion of Justice Black in context. He said that Thomas Jefferson had said that the Christian religion had to be separated from the public space. That was clearly either a lie 
by Justice Black or a display of how ignorant Justice Black was? Did Thomas Jefferson's actions when he was president reflect that point of view? Stepping back to see what happened, when Thomas Jefferson was president, you only need to note that during the time of his presidency, the US Congress allowed Christian Sunday worship services to be conducted in the Capitol itself. He attended those religious services and the Marine Band played in them. What's more, Christian worship was often held in the Supreme Court building, as noted by the Library of Congress. Throughout his administration, Jefferson permitted church services in executive branch buildings. The gospel was also preached in the Supreme Court chambers. Clearly, there was more at work in Justice Black making the finding that he did, and it wasn't because he was stupid. It was because he was a malicious atheist attacking Christianity. I say this because the way the English adversarial legal system works is that counsel for both sides of the matter before the judge put their arguments. Those arguments are not necessarily recorded, though, in the judgment. But it is almost inconceivable that these arguments did not explain how the First Amendment came into existence, and that no weight at all could be given to a private letter written by a man who had nothing to do with the drafting of the First Amendment in deciding that case. What Justice Blank found to be the meaning of the First Amendment, based on the deliberately misquoted words and context of Thomas Jefferson, whose every action as president showed that his views of the First Amendment were nothing like how Justice Black interpreted the later president's supposed views of the First Amendment, strongly suggest that Justice Black engaged in a deliberate sabotaging of what the First Amendment had been passed to do. The consequences of this vile, piece of judicial activism, profoundly undermining the democracy of the United States and all English-speaking countries, built like a tsunami, fed by further and repeated acts of other judicial activist judges, especially when dangerously coupled with the 14th Amendment, which meant that not only the federal government, but every state government had to lock out Christianity. Like what consequences did the Everson and Board of Education have on Christianity in America, you ask? I said I'd tell you what the consequences have been of the decision of Justice Black, which he pretended was based on what Thomas Jefferson had said. That was a bald-faced lie. First, to put in context what it means when a judge breaches their obligations to interpret the law, they're not appointed to make it. Here are a few useful comments about what it means for everyone when judges replace the laws enacted by our elected politicians with their own opinions which happens with judicial activism. Supreme Court Judge Antonin Scalia, in the case of Obergefell, pointed out the problems of judges making decisions that don't interpret the law as it was drafted by the Parliament Congress in the case of the United States, but torture it into saying what they want it to say. He said, This court consists of only nine men and women, all of them successful lawyers who studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. Four of the nine are natives of New York, not a single Southwesterner, not a single evangelical Christian, a group that comprises about one quarter of Americans, or even a Protestant of any denomination. The strikingly unrepresentative character of the body voting on today's social upheaval would be irrelevant if they were functioning as judges." But of course, the judges in today's majority say that they are not. And to allow the policy question of same-sex marriage to be considered and resolved by a select patrician, 
highly unrepresentative panel of nine, is to violate a principle even more fundamental than no taxation without representation. No social transformation without representation. Just as Robert Bork, a highly respected judge, professor at Yale Law School and the former Solicitor General of the United States, wrote a book called The Tempting of America. He wrote on the same topic of activist judges from a different point of view. He said this, The values a revisionist judge enforces do not, of course, come from the law. If they did, he would not be revising. The question then is where such a judge finds the values he implements. Academic theorists try to provide various philosophical apparatuses to give the judge the proper values. A judge inserting new principles into the Constitution tells us their origin only in a rhetorical, never an analytical style. There is, however, strong reason to suspect that the judge absorbs those values he writes into law from the social class or elite with which he identifies. An elite moral or political view may never be able to win an election or command the votes of a majority of a legislature, but it may nevertheless influence judges and gain the force of law in that way. That is the reason judicial activism is extremely popular with certain elites and why they encourage judges to think it the highest aspect of their calling. Legislation is far more likely to reflect majority sentiment, while judicial activism is likely to represent an elite minority's sentiment. The judge is free to reflect the better opinion because he needs not stand for a re-election and because he can deflect the majority's anger by claiming merely to have been enforcing the Constitution. Constitutional jurisprudence is mysterious terrain for most people who have more pressing things to think about, and a very handy fact that is for revisionists. Okay, here are the examples of changes that have flowed through the law affecting the fundamental rights of Christians in America. In my last program, I quoted constitutional scholar and historian Kevin Gutsman about the fact that law in America and the English-speaking world is today taught from cases and not from the deeper perspective of its history, how the law came into being. He warned that this would mean if the judges make a particular false assertion about the Constitution in numerous cases, students reading those opinions have no way of recognizing that assertion's falsity. They have provided no tools for analyzing judges' claims only with scads of the opinions incorporating those claims. The Everson judgment has led to the following examples of how one activist judge can remove from our society the wishes of the majority of people in the country, that the founding fathers were opposed to happening, and that the elected members of Congress would never have even attempted to do. They include banning the centuries-old tradition of having prayerful invocations at school commencement ceremonies, declared unconstitutional for an historical memorial to contain a cross as part of its display, and no matter how many previous decades the memorial had been standing, declared unconstitutional for the Ten Commandments to be displayed in a solitary setting at public courthouse and government building, despite the fact that the Ten Commandments are depicted in multiple locations throughout the U.S. Supreme Court, declared unconstitutional for a nativity scene to be displayed on public property unless surrounded by sufficient secular displays to prevent it from appearing religious, 
declared it unconstitutional for a city seal to depict any religious element, even if religion is actually the primary influence in the city's founding, struck down science curricula they dislike, set aside a Texas statute exempting religious publications from taxation, and struck down a Massachusetts law banning the sale of alcoholic beverages within 500 feet of a school or church if the school or church objected. Today, after the overturning of the activist decision in Roe v. Wade, there's hope that some of these cases will come before the present Conservative court and will be overturned, restoring the law to what it should have been always, and not the gross distortion that activist judges have made of it. Going back to the Everson case, overturn of that case will destroy all of these cases I've just referred to. Now it's time to get back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his speech at Harvard Law School on 8 June 1978, where with amazing foresight, he warned of the woke storm that was to come. He'd seen it before in the brutal regime of the greatest murderer of the 20th century, Joseph Stalin, under the most brutal and inhumane regimes on earth, those of the communists. As I said in my last program, all of this stuff about activist judges undermining the core of America was something that Solzhenitsyn wasn't particularly aware of, at least not directly. Judges in the Soviet Union were just paid public servants of the Communist Party who did what they were told. But he was undoubtedly aware of the dangerous and fatally damaging shift against Christianity that flowed from judicial activism. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIE. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, The Good Shepherd, at Collins Avenue, Edge Hill, some Sunday. If you liked this program, you should listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone.